morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, I've been away for a couple of weeks, and uh, it's been pretty fun, actually. I, I've had three weeks um, holiday. I get that. The school I work at. Uh, we have a, a slightly longer mid-year break. And for one of those weeks, um, from the 14th to the 21st of July, I was uh, one of the teachers responsible for taking a group of Year 13 students over to Vanuatu. Uh, the purpose was to go and to build two houses in four days. Uh, and yes, yes, it was um, quite a challenge. We had these two houses we needed to build. They were for the families of two teenagers who were severely disabled. And they lived on a small island, small island just off um, uh, Ifate, which is the sort of main island where Port Vila, the capital, is located. And it was a small sort of boat trip out there, about a 20-minute boat trip from the mainland after having gone on a bus across the main island. And once you got there, there were a few hundred people living along the shores of this island, which is about probably three or four k long. They are primarily uh, about fishing on this island, so that's their main industry. And needless to say, they're not using deep-sea trawlers. They're going out in small open boats. The economy there struggles, and therefore people, generally speaking, are living in pretty uh, significant poverty. These families with these disabled young people were even more in sort of dire straits, you could say. Uh, in a country where there is really very little in terms of a social safety net, these families had to fend for themselves. And in both cases, only one parent could go out to work because the other parent had to stay home and care for their child. Even with a really worthy motive, reason for going, it was still an overwhelming kind of task. In fact, the only way I really kind of coped with the idea of trying to build um, a house, uh, there were two houses, had, we had another guy, he was leading his half of the team and they were building that house, the only way I could kind of cope with this idea of building a house from plans that I'd never worked from before, with materials that may or may not turn up as arranged in the right quantities uh, to the right specifications, the only way I could really cope with that concept was to simply tell myself it's going to be okay. I was going to be the uh, irrepressible optimist that I'm known for. Um, I say irrepressible optimist, others say irritatingly optimistic, um, my wife in particular. Uh, so that was how I coped, and I, I, I believed that somehow we were going to do it as a team. One of the big challenges, though, I realized, was that I, I'm not a builder, uh, far from it. I've done a few things, you know, practically. I've helped on builds like this before in places like Fiji, but that was with people who really knew what they were doing. Uh, I had a, an incredible group of teenagers. I mean, these young people are going places in life. 
Probably none of them, though, into the trades um, or even architecture, but certainly they're going to make a huge impact on the world, just in different professions. So getting there and realizing that my half of the group who were going to be in my particular team building this particular house really didn't have any kind of building skills whatsoever. In fact, the very first hour I realized that some of them didn't know how to hold a spade. And that's quite difficult when you're digging um, post holes uh, that have to be you know, done just right. We had a limited amount of concrete and therefore we couldn't dig the holes too wide, we couldn't go too deep with them, uh, and so on. Now then it came to hammering things. Um, some of them did know which way to hold the hammer, that was important, but they didn't know how to swing the hammer. And so we bent a lot of nails in the first couple of days. Some also, in fact all of them, didn't know how to square something up. So when it came to cutting things, it's important that you square it up. They didn't know how to do that either. So while I was trying to wear multiple hats, doing quite a bit of the build, um, I was also trying to teach. And it, it was an amazing week, let's put it that way. Now, I don't know if you've heard in the news, but um, if you've ever been to Barcelona, you will know there is an incredible landmark there. A beautiful building. Anyone know what it's called? Sagrada Familia, that's right. Now, I haven't had the privilege of going and seeing it yet with my own eyes. I've been to Europe a few times, but I've never made it to Barcelona yet. My wife has, and she raves about it. Um, mainly because I've travelled more than she has, so she always has to have one up on me. Um, and that's her way of kind of reminding me that I haven't seen everything. So she tells me this is the most incredible building, you know, you've, you've got to go and see it. And I, I saw in the news that they've announced that there is an official completion date for that building. Now if you know any of the history behind it, um, Gaudi, the, the architect responsible for it, came up with this idea and he had a lot of sketches and plans. And this, this building began construction in 1882. Now they've just announced in the 2026 they're going to complete the structure. It's going to take I think another six years for them to finish the interior kind of uh, elements. But this building, just from the images I've seen, is the most complex and creative structure I think in the world. Thankfully I wasn't building that last week. Um, and we got quite creative, I can tell you. Uh, but what I wanted to look at now is, is really the, the, passage, the, sorry, the passage in John this morning in chapter 16. So let's go there first, and then I'm going to tell you why I mentioned these stories that I've just told you. So in John 16, now you'll notice I don't have any fancy slides today. Um, that's because I realized yesterday I was, I was, as I was getting ready that I didn't have a template, and I wasn't going to try and design one. Um, so you're going to have to just listen extra carefully to what I say. Uh, so John chapter 16, starting in verse 4. If you, if you, you recall, on the, uh, the 7th of July, I think it was, um, Stu Jones, he got up and he uh, preached on the passage that proceeds. So he looked at the, uh, the warnings that Jesus gave to his disciples. And this idea that if you wear the shirt, you're going to have to be prepared for the dirt that gets thrown at you for the tough time you get, for the persecution that follows, because the world doesn't understand you. In fact, it's antagonistic towards you because you are identified with Christ. Now, having completely freaked them out, Jesus then goes on and says the words in the passage we're about to look at this morning. 
So verse 4. I have told you this, meaning the, the warnings about the persecution that will come, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for you. Good, uh, sorry, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, for you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known. In a little while you will see me no more. Then after a little while you will see me. As I said, Jesus has gone and freaked out his disciples. They have gone into a panic. And he, he makes mention of this fact that he can see they are visibly disturbed by these words that he is speaking to them. Not only are they going to get persecuted and killed even, he said. They're probably going to get killed for representing him, for serving in his name. That's, that's quite concerning if you're a follower of Jesus, especially if you're a follower of Jesus uh, and you have been raised as a, you know, a good uh, Jewish um, uh, individual been raised on this idea that the Messiah, whoever that is, whatever that might, might be, uh, is going to be some kind of victorious military um, you know, sort of, uh, leader, figure that will presumably liberate you and your people and the land of Israel from the occupying force called the Roman Empire. Most Jews at this time had that concept what the Messiah would be. Someone in the, in the kind of the image of King David. Somebody capable of swinging a sword. Somebody capable of great courage, great leadership, and vision. And so here, he's hearing, sorry, he, they're hearing a message of what sounds like defeat almost. An impossible task requiring the ultimate price from followers. And they're panicking because they know they're inadequate. They can't do anything, really, that he's been modeling for them. They can't emulate him the way they know they need to. They're thinking of all the... Uh, incredibly challenging statements that he's made throughout his ministry. He's been living the Christian life, demonstrating 
what it ought to look like. And they look at themselves and they think, we fall so short, it's not even funny. We miss the mark by so much that it's probably not even worth trying. Why would he set us up for failure? Because he's just announced in those first few verses of the passage that he's about to go away. It's hard enough following him around, watching him do all this stuff. It's hard enough to make sense of it. It's hard enough to, to emulate that while he's there with them. It's going to be absolutely impossible once he's gone. You don't have that person that you can model your, your own life on right there in front of you. And what do you do? This is the, the, the challenge for so many young people when they don't have, say, a father in their life. And I talk with young guys all the time about this. We've struggled. What does it mean to be a man when you have no real male role model present in your life as you're growing up? Well, just imagine for the disciples then, as they're thinking that Jesus is about to disappear and they're left with this impossible task. Some of the statements that he's made, and just think about this for a moment, some of the statements he's made, go back to the Beatitudes. So Matthew 5, verse 44. He said to them, love your enemies. How are they going to do that? That's not going to happen. They're still essentially the same you know, group of people that he collected from various workplaces and hangouts early in his ministry. They're still the same fishermen, tax collector. Though they have temporarily given these things up, walked away from it all. They aren't fundamentally different. They aren't sort of profoundly different people inside. They've been inspired. They've been challenged. They've certainly been convicted by his example and by his teaching. They are still fundamentally the same people. If anything now, you know, ignorance was bliss before, if anything now, they're even more troubled, more concerned. Because when you've seen the Christian life lived perfectly, the way it was supposed to have been lived, and you have even half a concern for living a life that you know, God wants you to live, then you're going to beat up on yourself. You're going to feel like a total failure. Think about Matthew 7 verse 1. Do not judge. How are they going to do that? I mean, maybe you could love your enemies by avoiding them. How do you not judge? I mean, that just happens all the time. We're constantly judging other people. We're constantly being judged ourselves. Every day we're doing it. They think to themselves, oh, we, we can't do that. We can't avoid judging people. We're going to fall into this trap all the time. And then think of the stuff that he did. Think of the things that Jesus did that he told them they would also do. He raised people from the dead. And while he was around, they got to do similar things, but it was always with him there in the background, standing there, looking over their shoulder. It's all very well to do something like that when you have a person who is capable 
watching, ready to intervene, to step in if things go wrong. Just as it happened when uh, the disciples tried to deliver the, the boy who was possessed. And the father said, you know, to Jesus, they, they've tried, but they can't do it. And so Jesus steps in, and he does it. It's all very well to do that sort of thing when Jesus is around, but now he's going to be gone. He's going to disappear. You know, over in Vanuatu, we were dealing with, with plans uh, that someone had very carefully come up with. I mean, they'd detailed these plans um, in, in such a way that really, you know, you could interpret them without uh, having to talk to the architect, to the person who first drew them up. Very, very well done plans, very carefully thought out plans. And the, and the theory was that the materials that were being delivered were going to, um, to be pre-cut, they were going to be matching the, the plans, the dimensions, exactly. And so really all you had to do, apparently, before we left, was take this, this uh, bunch of materials and just assemble them in the right way, nail them together, stand them up, and hey, presto, you got a house. Um, I believed that before I left. I soon found, in, fa in fact, about a few minutes into the build, I found out that this just wasn't the case. Uh, what had happened was that they were using plans, or they'd given us plans, that actually didn't uh, measure, measure up or, or match the materials that were supplied. And so there was a great deal of improvisation. Uh, bear in mind, too, that you're building a house with cyclone specifications in mind, so things have to be there after a very big cyclone. They've got to still be standing. That's, that's quite a bit of pressure added to what is already, already a uh, pressured situation. Add to that that every time I went, went to walk off and, and do something else and to go and confer with my, my colleague who was about 15 minutes down a track on another building site, I'd come back to find that that despite all the best intentions, uh, some of my workers had built frames the wrong way around. Um, or in certain cases, they'd put the frames upside down. Uh, it didn't, didn't matter in the end, and trust me, it, it doesn't matter in the end, actually, with these, these, these particular plans. You can put the frames upside down and it still works. Um, <laughs> you'll only know that, though, if you go and pull all the cladding off and have a look. Which you won't do. So, anyway, we... we we had some major challenges. Um, we had workers who didn't know really what they were doing, and, um, and I only half knew what I was doing. Think about then what the disciples are facing. They have this incredible blueprint, which they've seen in person. They've seen it modeled by Jesus. But when it comes to implementing it themselves, Life is just so much more complicated even than a, a build in Vanuatu. So, if Jesus is the only person to have successfully lived the Christian life, it's probably a little wonder that people today, Christians today, look at what is expected of them in the Scriptures. And they sort of balk at the idea. They freak out. We freak out. There is an important reality that the disciples hadn't understood, that they hadn't seen yet. 
And I think for so many Christians today, it is also the case that while they have come into a faith, they haven't understood something profoundly important about how that faith works. We've, uh, we've frequently resorted, and we do this all the time today, we've frequently res- resorted throughout the centuries to culture. We've believed, particularly in the, in sort of the Judeo-Christian West, that if enough people are doing the right thing, that somehow things will be okay. That if enough people have Judeo-Christian ethics, and if our law, our legal system, our culture, our society around us is working from the same uh, set of blueprints, then we will be better for it, that our, our, our Christian life will not be so difficult to live. There are issues like euthanasia and abortion, and um, all sorts of things going on. Things that are happening right now in our government. And a lot of Christians, and I understand this, I do, I do understand why, but a lot of Christians spend an, an inordinate amount of time trying to address things that have to do with the external. Believing somehow that if, if the culture and the environment around us is conducive to a, a real Christian life, you know, a, a, a successful Christian life, um, then that will, be, that will be enough. That's what the world needs. But Jesus challenges this idea. And I think we need to challenge ourselves. We need to be challenged too. We, we panic at this idea that our Judeo-Christian society, or what once was perhaps a Judeo-Christian society, is crumbling. That other people don't share our views. That they don't share our moral, spiritual outlook. Um, social norms have changed. They've changed profoundly. And of course, it's only natural that the law follows suit. Stuart Briscoe, um, a pastor in the United States who I've, I've derived a great deal of inspiration and encouragement from, um, said this, we live in a fallen world populated by fallen people who live according to fallen principles and who have created a fallen culture. So when it comes to culture, the norms, social norms, what's going on in our government, don't get your hopes up. We can campaign because it's the right thing to do. We can draw attention to the problems that that come when human life is not valued the way it should be. But don't expect a solution to the real problems going on in our society. That is the human heart. So culture is a crutch, but it's not the remedy. It's not the remedy for the problem of the human heart. And I think for the disciples, they they looked at Jesus and they thought, as long as he's around, we'll be okay. As long as we've got that influence on us, even if it is externally, we'll be fine. Sort of a form of spiritual peer pressure. 
But that's not really what Jesus came to achieve. Not only did he come to achieve forgiveness of sins, but he came to do something much more. Not much more, but equally important. And so the second idea I really want to kind of introduce is this, that it is inner transformation that is needed. Because if the human heart is the problem, then the human heart is the thing that has to change. And a human heart is not a simple thing. It is a complex thing. We talk about the human heart, especially as, as Christians, we're, we're talking about the person, the inner person, the mind, will, and emotions. And often when the Bible is talking about the heart, it means the same sort of thing. If the human heart is the problem, then it is the most complex thing known to human beings. They say that the brain is the most complex organism, the most complex thing actually known to human beings. Well, it's part of the problem, isn't it? Our brains, the way we feel, the way we will, the way we determine to do things. It's all fallen. And so the only way that transformation will really occur in our society is if the heart is addressed. And so this is where Jesus introduces the idea of the paraclete, parakletos in Greek. Now it has, a various, uh, has various sort of meanings to it, but um, some versions uh, of the Bible will say helper, others will say counselor, others will say advocate, um, others intercessor, and so on. That's because there are so many facets to this, this word. But one of the really important things that we need, to, we need to point out is that this is not simply a thing. This is a someone. And Paul goes on uh, to explain in Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 17, he says this, and he prays for the Ephesians. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. People say, you know, ah, oh, you'll be in my heart forever. And they talk about another person. Well, that experience will be, will be treasured in my heart forever. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing that Paul's talking about. When people say that, they're saying the memory, the emotion will be remembered, you know, will be held on to. What Paul's saying is the creator himself, the savior himself, the very spirit of Jesus will come to live in each and every one of you. And that is revolutionary. You could try, you know, campaigning socially, politically, to get society to change. But the only real way that you will see profound and long-lasting change is if the human heart is addressed. And the human heart can only really be addressed when the creator, the savior, the master builder, and master architect comes to live in you. Now, for so many of us, you know, there have been times, perhaps long stretches in our lives, where we've wondered why we're always failing, why we're always struggling. Not so much why are there problems around me, 
But why am I the problem and why do I, why do I continue to battle away only finding that I lose every time? And it's because we haven't understood or we've forgotten this truth. That when you have the master architect and master builder all in one living in you, not only is there a clear plan that he reveals in your innermost being, but he has that ability, unlike anyone else, to bring it about. He has the power as well as the vision. He offers us wisdom, but he also offers us strength. He is our capability. And in Colossians 1 verse 27, one of my favorite verses, because this is when, you know, when I read this for the first time and heard someone explain it to me, it suddenly all made sense. As a struggling, defeated Christian who thought that it really all depended on me, for it, to, for it to work, for my Christian life to work. I read that verse and I suddenly understood, no, it's been a mystery to me, and it's a mystery to a lot of people, a lot of Christians. But Christ living in me is my hope of glory. And there's a, a key sort of section here in this passage, um, verses 8 to 11. Jesus says this, uh, after having sort of made, made the point that if he sticks around, then he, he's not going to send his Holy Spirit. So he needs to go so that he can send his Holy Spirit. He says this, the Holy Spirit is going to do stuff. Three things in particular. The Holy Spirit is going to have the convicting properties that allow people to understand guilt, to understand righteousness, and to understand judgment. Well, why couldn't people understand that when Jesus was walking around in the flesh? They only had sort of a, a little bit of insight into these things. But when the Holy Spirit came, those things would suddenly really make sense. Well, guilt, guilt is something that needs to happen in the heart, in the innermost being. And, uh, sorry, I should say, Understanding and awareness of guilt. You can um, do all sorts of things that seem sort of um, to say that you're sorry, that you feel bad when people are watching. But then you can carry on living your life when they're not watching and you don't think about it so much. But when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you understand that, well, there are certain things that he sees, in fact, he sees everything that other people just don't see. Not to say he's acting like Big Brother, but he's there. He's able to help us understand that we don't have to live with that sense of shame anymore. The disciples were still very much hung up on their inadequacies, on their, on their uh, inability to do what was right. Peter was terribly ashamed. Of the fact that he rejected Jesus when he most needed him. And there's also this idea of righteousness. We can be uh, convicted or we're able to understand that righteousness is only possible, really, when we have the Spirit of God living in us. The, the blueprints, the plan that the master architect came up with, 
are now achievable, they're now possible, because the master builder is the one and the same. He's the same as the architect. And with judgment. This is, and this is probably the more challenging sort of uh, part of the verse, but this idea of judgment. And he says, the, the, the prince of this world will be condemned, stand condemned. Well, the Holy Spirit puts paid to the lie that the, the prince of this world, the devil, tries to dis- disseminate, tries to you know, sort of uh, feed into our thinking. And that is that if you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you apply yourself consistently enough, you will meet the requirements of the Christian life. But that's the lie. And the devil will be condemned for that among other things. Because the Holy Spirit will show that it is not in our own strength, but in his strength, that the Christian life is made possible. Um, there are so many things in this passage, and we don't have time to look at them all, but the disciples get this news from Jesus. And yet they have to wait. They have to wait until the day of Pentecost to suddenly realize what it looks like. Suddenly get the answer, the package that he's promised. Um, on the day of Pentecost, reality shifted fundamentally for them and for us. Up until then, we only had the blueprints. And really, sort of the, the feeble attempts of human beings to try and do what it was God intended uh, us to do. But with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, things suddenly became possible. Not a life completely free from all mistakes and sin, because, well, it's a relationship. It's a relationship in which we need to choose daily to obey or not. And because Jesus never forces you know, his will on us, we will fail. But we're not condemned for that, and that's important. His grace allows for that. But if we don't look at this uh, fundamental uh, reality, which has changed, don't look at this amazing gift that he's given us and appreciate that our lives don't have to be a string of failures, of burnouts, of, of, of struggles. And even when we do fail or we struggle, He'll pick us up again and he'll show us again that he can do it in us. Then life, Christian life, makes all the sense in the world. Um, I don't know if you've seen this with young kids, your own kids, but uh, there's a certain age where they get given a gift and they're more fascinated in the wrapping paper than they are the actual gift. And I think a lot of the time, as Christians, we get caught up in all the trappings or the extras, packaging. We forget, we overlook what it is really that is at the, the heart of that gift. His grace and his presence in us. That is the essence of the Christian faith. That is the essence of the gift we've received. Um, a couple of things just to finish with. My dad, when he first arrived in New Zealand over 50 years ago, he, uh, has been, he's been living in Mellons Bay for most of that time, and he went swimming with a friend, and they were swimming out to a yacht that another friend had, 
uh, just out there off Mellons Bay, off that area. And the waves, you know, they don't, waves don't get that big down there, but, but certainly it was quite a long way out. And as they were swimming, after a while, the waves were kind of splashing over my dad's face, and he was starting to wonder whether he was going to make it. He was a bit concerned that he wasn't going to get to the yacht, and he was going to go under. And so in the very sort of extremely polite, probably too polite manner that uh, some English people sometimes have, he called out to his friend and he said, excuse me, um, <clears throat> but I think I'm in a bit of trouble. And uh, he's ditched a lot of that BBC accent now. Um, but he, he says this, and his friend calls out to him and says, why don't you just stand up? Now, he didn't realize it, but the water was only about chest deep. And there he was, battling away through those, those waves, trying to get somewhere, thinking it was impossible. Well, it is impossible, unless you understand that your reality is quite different from what you assumed it was. And that is the, the challenge for us, is to realize that he is within us. He's not out there somewhere, he's within us. We've received him as our savior, he's within us. Um, the disciples forgot this when they were out on the boat, sailing across the lake, with Jesus in the back. They left him to go to sleep while they thought they could run the boat. And as things got worse and the, the, the weather deteriorated, they suddenly called out to him in desperation. And he rebukes them because he says, you know, I was in the boat the whole time. A year of little faith. Why didn't you ask me earlier? I've been there the whole time, ready to help. Um, so just to kind of recap, don't think that imitating Jesus will work. Don't think that changing the environment around you, the culture around you, is going to be the key to a successful Christian life. If you think that your kids will make better choices simply because the society around them is more positive, more, more Christ-like, well, Unfortunately, you're fooling yourselves. If we believe that, then we've missed the fundamental reality, that reality that was introduced on the day of Pentecost. The only thing that will really give our young people, in fact, anyone of any age, the resilience, the purpose, the strength, the vision, the wisdom to live the Christian life is an awareness of who it is that can live in them. Secondly, if, uh, if we go back to the day of Pentecost, we realize that our reality shifted fundamentally. Human condition is not the end of the story. Our fallen human nature is not the end of the story. In fact, as, as believers, our lives that we once lived are now dead. And the new life that comes with the Holy Spirit is within us. And ready to be engaged and to be activated simply with a prayer that says thank you. And thirdly, are we overlooking the fact that the master architect and master builder, all in one, has come to live in us? The impossible plan is only impossible to us if we don't understand that the master architect is also the master builder. Um, The last thing I want to say is this. Hearing Stacy um, hear her story 
exactly, exactly this time a year ago. Tracy and I, we were in Greece with our two girls, and, um, and, and so Tracy, my wife, had taken your book, Stacey, and she had read it while we were traveling in Europe. And as we got to the island of Naxos, she, she finished the book, and she had tears rolling, sorry, I hate to say that, I haven't actually read your book, so I don't know why I'm crying. <coughs> She had tears rolling down her face as she finished that last page. And she took the book and she wrote a little message in the front of it. And she put it on the stand where we were staying, where people are coming through all the time. And I think the note went something like, if you have opened this book, I want you to read it and to understand that there is a a gift contained within this story. Um, and we had something like that. And that book, I assume, is either in Naxos or somewhere around the world now, in somebody's hands, being read. Because Stacey's story, as I've heard it, is a story of someone who understood that there was a plan. And while that plan hadn't really come to fruition, it hadn't really materialized initially, it was when understood that the master builder could make it happen, that he was the one and the same as the master architect. That's when the life that was intended to be lived began to be lived. So with that, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, who you promised to be, and who, who you have proven to be in the lives of so many. Lord, we thank you that you are the helper. You're the one who makes the plan possible. Thank you so much for that reality, the reality that changed on the day of Pentecost. And Lord, help us to share this message. The Christian life is impossible when we live it in our own strength, but it is entirely possible when we let you live it through us. Thank you for your wonderful grace, your wonderful presence in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.